1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Getting in a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host for this week. My name is Ian Fisher, and we're going to do a little bit of travel on the show today. Not to any particular place, but to types of places. In our second segment, which we're not starting with, we're going to go and talk a little bit about rural college environments and what it's like to be a student well, to use a pejorative, out in the middle of nowhere. And I think we'll be corrected on that concept. But first, we want to talk about what it's like to go to college in a city. And to do that, we're fortunate enough to be joined by a couple of our college coach experts who went to college in a city. Uh, So did I, but apparently I can't just host a segment with only me on the show. So Joining us today, we've got Lauren Randall, who is here today because she is an alumna of Georgetown University. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Ian. And we've also got Tova Javits, who is joining us, who is an alumna of Barnard College in New York City. Hi, Tova. Hi, hello. So what I'm curious about, before we can start, um, is uh, I would like to know where each of you went to high school what the setting was in that particular space, and how that idea of going to college in a city might have been attractive to you given where you were growing up. So Lauren, why don't we start with you? You're at the top of my screen, so we're just gonna start with you.
2: Sure, I grew up in South Jersey, as far south as you can get, at a shore vacation type town. Hmm. Um, It's awesome in the summer, not a lot to do in the winter, And I knew what was important to me was being within driving distance from home. I did not want to get on a plane, but I knew I needed more action. Um, So I started my college search 100% convinced I was going to NYU. I wanted to be in New York. My mom went to NYU and that's where I belonged. I ended up at Georgetown. We can get there. But I I knew I needed more than the beach.
1: Very interesting. Tova, what about you? Where did you grow up? And, and uh, what were you thinking when you were choosing where you'd like to apply?
3: I grew up in farm country, Pennsylvania, what is called <laughs> Amish country, Pennsylvania, um, in not such a small town, Lebanon, next to Lancaster and Hershey and Reading. Uh, but all of our family was in the New York metro area. And I actually went to high school to answer you directly in suburban New York. I uh okay. went at a... I boarded at a school, and I, too, knew I wanted to be in New York City, although I didn't deviate from that, Lauren. Uh, I went on a tour of NYU, but I knew, as all 17-year-olds know, that I wanted to go to Columbia, and I was certain uh, and until I took a tour and realized that it was not the school for me, but I did know I wanted to be in New York City, And I can admit that was not well-researched or founded. It was out of lack of idea of other cities. (laughs) Um, It was a city that I knew. And I knew being in a big city was a big draw for me.
1: New York City is, in many ways, the city. Um, And I don't mean to critique Chicago or Los Angeles or even San Francisco, but New York City is the city. And I went to school in Portland, Technically, I went to school in a city as well, but there's a real difference from Reed College in Portland, Oregon, to Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., to Barnard College or NYU in New York City. Um, How should students think a little bit about the differences? Because you will have students say, I want more action. I want to be at school in a city. Lauren, what does it mean to actually have access to that action as opposed to simply having your campus situated within the city limits?
2: I mean, I, well, first, I think any city or with access to action, you're going to have it no matter where you go. There's a big difference between college and high school. Let's just be very clear. Yeah. Independence gives you access to action. Right. So um, so I, I think regardless, you're you're going to have that access in a very new and, and different way. Um, but there is a difference in cities. Charleston is different than than. Than Chicago and Miami is different than, than New York. I still think, yeah. you know, defining some things that are important to you, whether that is driving distance or being on a plane, whether that is having a defined closed off kind of campus, or you really want to be in the thick of it and be very urban and live in, you know, basically what feels like a hotel. Um weather could be important to you. I was not going to be happy. I love Chicago. Too cold. (laughs) Miami was too hot. So, you know, it's that Goldilocks effect. So, um, but I think, you know there is a difference of being in a city and having access it does become part of your college experience mm. um, and that was very much the case for me at georgetown even though when i compare it to my friends that went to george washington that is far more urban even within mm. the, the city as Geor- than georgetown is um of what that meant of my daily experience interacting with the city
1: yeah. What do you think? What do you think, Toba, in, in well, terms I of think thinking about those different
3: distinctions are really important And yeah. when students say they want to go to a school in the city? It's important to think about what does that mean for a campus uh, and, mm-hmm. and what Lauren said is a defined campus. Are you a school that is in and of the city when you're walking around downtown Manhattan? Can you not differentiate between a building that is an NYU building or a new school building other than it happens to have a flag outside? Or have you crossed 116th Street in Broadway, and now you enter the gates of Barnard College, and you are in a gated area, or Fordham University, where I also used to work. When you're standing in the middle of Fordham's campus in the Bronx, you would never know you're in New York City. You look around, and you're in the middle of any campus in New England, and it looks just like every campus you've ever seen in every movie because they're all actually filmed at Fordham, by the way. And it is a very different physical feel than perhaps NYU or GW, where you are in and of the city. That's the language a lot of those schools use. And thinking Mm -hmm. about when you close your eyes and you picture what you want college to look like, is having a quad and seeing people play Frisbee important to you? And does that have to happen at Central Park or like a big public park? Or do you want that in a quad with, you know, gothic architecture and buildings that look like college, like you see it in the movies uh, or are you down for being part of a a city?
1: Yeah, it's an important question. And I think that like being in a city has just that, that geographic definition, which is just where it's located. But then there's also this kind of interaction that you get with the city. And I'm, I'm curious because I think with Reed, Uh, Portland is a big draw for Reed, but I don't actually think that Reed needs to be in Portland in order to be able to do the kind of educational and social experience that it does. It could be picked up, airlifted, and dropped somewhere else, and it would be very, very similar in terms of the experience. A lot of students would miss out on that chance to go down to Powell's Books or to interact with Portland, but I don't see that as an essential part of the experience. It's a feature, but not essential I get the impression and I'd love to hear your thoughts that that is not true with Georgetown that's not true with Barnard that the the location is really central to the identity of the school and the experience that just about every student has at that school is that something that that resonates with you Lauren and and Georgetown Does
2: Lauren always get to go first
1: here? Is I was going to go I was going to do you just for the go sake ahead, of like though, not it, being a jerk you know, but like you just talked and so I'm kind of <laughs> over it. So I want to hear what Lauren has to say.
2: Uh, so, well, uh, yes and no, Ian, you're both right and wrong here. Um, in terms of my experience with Georgetown, I do, you know, it is a big part of being in Washington DC as a Georgetown student. I didn't know anybody, anybody who did not intern, right? That was part of the experience. Mm -hmm. We got in our power suits and we got on a bus and we went to our internships. That was part of my yearly experience, not just my summer experience, Um, so that was a, that was part of, of the living learning experience, um, in Washington, D.C. Um, and that was, if you didn't take advantage of it, what a wasted opportunity, right? That's really how I felt. Um, I think that's how all Georgetown students feel, but on a day to day, I mean, maybe some students go on a first date to some of the Smithsonians or things like, but no, on a day to day, I was not in the city um, beside, you know, besides my internship experience, which for me, it was very professionally driven. Um, and once every four years you attend inauguration, but being in DC besides, you know, it, it was not a, it was not a daily interaction unless it was for my professional development in my internships. Um,
1: yeah, that's a great point. Tova, when you woke up on campus every morning, did you wake up and think I'm at Barnard or do you wake up thinking I'm in New York? Like, what was your general feel of daily life? So
3: I have one distinct memory that I was just joking around with uh, my college roommates uh, that I'm still tight with. And I remember our very first night on campus, um, sitting in the window sill, sill looking out onto the street. And I looked over at my roommate. We are literally on Broadway. Our our residence hall looked out onto Broadway, as in the Broadway. Yeah. This is... How, how surreal is that? We live in New York City. Um, but here's, I think, what's different for my experience is it evolved and I think was common for students. You could have all things true. You could have a student who lived a life in New York City who attended Barnard College. You could have a student who lived a life at Barnard College and every once in a while explored life outside. Um, but I think most students found some sort of balance between the two. That evolved over their four years. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of students, their first semester, year, spend a lot of time right at Barnard, maybe venture out a little bit into Columbia. And then as years go on, they take more and more advantage of the city, less as a visitor, as a tourist, and more as someone who is now living in part of the city. I mean, in terms of all the student discounts you get and the student access you have as being a student with a student ID card in a big city. It is just like free access to every kind of museum, discount tickets to shows. A lot of restaurants give discounts to students as well. Uh, but I don't think I took as much advantage of that right away. And it was more of the shock and awe of I am in New York City. I live here at the very beginning.
1: I think that's true for most students is that you really want to get your bearings, you want to meet other people, you want to figure out your dorm, you want to figure out the expectations of your classes. But as time goes on, the city becomes a resource in many ways. You're pointing out all of these opportunities to engage with the culture of New York. Lauren, you're pointing out, you know, this internship that was ubiquitous among Georgetown students. I think it's great. It's not always the case that that's what students are thinking about when they think about going to college in a city. What are some common misconceptions that students have or things that maybe the two of you are more attuned to as counselors where students are like, I want to go to school in a city because and they say something and you're like, that's not that's not the reason to want to go or that's not, you're gonna find that it's not gonna be exactly the way that you expect that to be. Does that ever come up in your counseling? This seems like maybe a hard question. So let's start with Tova on this one.
3: Oh, sure, now, now. Uh Um, I think the misconception sometimes comes with size of city. They say city and in their head, they mean New York, DC, Boston, Chicago, LA and that's it. Mm -hmm. Um, I once was um, at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. And how quick are people to dismiss Omaha, Nebraska as, as farm country? Omaha is a thriving metropolis. There are a whole bunch of financial headquarters there. Um, they have this really cool, funky, artsy downtown. Uh, the U.S. National Swim Trials are always there. The uh, Little League World Series is always there. And it's it, it can be have, have the same opportunities as any city, can offer. So I think sometimes students are quick to dismiss a small city, not realizing it might Mm -hmm. have the exact Mm -hmm. same advantages of why they want, why they might be drawn to a city. And what does city mean? It doesn't have to be one of the top four or five voluminous wise. Uh, and, And as long as you have an urban classification, you might still get all those advantages
2: that we're talking about.
1: Gotcha. So broaden your definition in mm-hmm. some respects. Yeah. Lauren, what do you think?
2: I think maybe a misconception and I, I don't know, cause I did not go to a rural school and I did not go to a, an NYU or a GW that is very much, you know, in and of the city. Um, but I think a lot of students that I talk to and say, well, I don't want to go to a small school or I don't want to go to a school in the middle of nowhere because I need to meet new people. I need to be like, I want to feel alive in the city. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think a city can be a very lonely place just because there's so much going on around you does not mean that that is, you know, that you can't have eh, that. that's, you know, everything. Right. So, you know, and, and my mom, is. I started this off by saying I was going to NYU and my mom was very clear. I, she didn't want me to go to NYU because it was the loneliest <laughs> she ever was. Yeah. Right. And, she, and so, you know, it's just really, and she transferred from Muhlenberg. She's like, I had more friends there. Um, but again, so the draw of a city Sometimes there can be a mis- I, I, misconception. I think that's regardless, I think there's a level of independence a student should come in with of say like, if, you're, if you say you're going to take advantage of these things, like, what does that really mean in practice?
0: Yeah,
1: I mean it's, I, I'm sort of thinking of the difference between meeting people at like a big party versus a dinner party, right? Mm-hmm. So at a dinner party, there are fewer people to talk to, but they're going to be conversations, like you're going to connect with people like it or not. Um, at a big party, you can very much just kind of float through and not talk to people. And yeah. there's this kind of common misconception, I think that lots of college students have that everybody else has it together and they don't, you know, it's like, how do they know each other? How have they made friends? But those other people, meanwhile, are looking at you and saying, how does she have it together? How did she have friends already? So, um, and I think that that can be exacerbated in a city where there's so much life that's happening around you. And you're wondering, why am I not a part of all of these things? I'm just going back to my dorm room to eat, you know, microwave pizza, Um, which I imagine is okay in New York as well, right? Can you do that?
3: Okay. I mean um, no, I'm not gonna let you eat microwave pizza in New York City. Pick a different to, food you're go gonna make.
1: Like. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Um I I, I do appreciate these like different sense of, of scenes and settings. One of the things that I think is a devil's advocate's perspective is Um, you go to college for the college experience and you can never really have that experience on campus again in your life. But if you want to live in New York, you can do that in your late twenties. You can do it in your early thirties. It's something that you can, you can have in a different context. What is your thinking around, you know, is there something really special about being a student in a city that captures the best of both of those worlds, um, or is there an argument to be made that when you're living in New York, you really just want to be living in New York and, and not worrying about your philosophy homework?
2: Hmm. I would jump in really quickly to say that when I graduated, I felt like I was still in college. Pretty much nobody left. Every All of my friends stayed in Washington, D.C. It was all of our first jobs. It was a very easy transition. All of a sudden I was like, whoa, there's a whole city out here, finally I took it. So I did get the college experience and then the city experience, yeah. which just nobody left. And I don't know that's necessarily the same for a rural school.
1: Oh, interesting. Tobo, yeah. what do you think?
2: Uh, similar, I
3: stayed too, as do many of my friends. But <laughs> as an adult, which I think I can call myself now, 20 some years later, 25 some years later. You look like uh, one of mm-hmm. <laughs> we, um I can say confidently, we could say room and board in college is expensive. Oh, my goodness. You know, 1200 $1,300 a month room and board these days. That is dirt cheap. In New York City for a heck of a lot nicer than you're ever going to be able to afford as a recent college grad. Do you want a nice apartment that you can afford? Uh, college may be your cheapest option to live in New York City and, a, and a, to a, a room overlooking Broadway. I assure you it was many, 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 many years if I will ever be able to afford that kind of living in New York City.
4: Before we
1: before we go out to the country and hear a little bit about Ryan, uh, what Ryan has to say, uh, you know, I think often students are kind of considering different situations. There are kids out there that say, I'm going to be in a city, period, and so I'm only looking at New York, Boston, Chicago schools. But then I think there are a lot of students who will say, well, NYU is on my list, but I'm also going to go look at Vassar, and I'm going to check out Hamilton, and you know, there's going to be a mix of potential schools. When students are visiting an urban campus or a city campus, what are the things that they should be paying attention to and looking for as a way of getting a feel for what life might be like there? Because there's obviously there's a lot of noise, literally and figuratively, in a city. How do you tune some of that out and make sure you're getting the best perspective you can? What do you think, Lauren?
2: Well, I don't. I just don't know that it's any different. Um, the questions no. that I would ask are no different. Um, if I was going to go tour Kenyan College versus Columbia College, Columbia University, like to me, it's the same questions of, of getting off the tour a bit or, or asking very targeted personal you know off script questions to the tour guide yeah. sitting in the dining hall looking at what student organizations are going on so it, it's it's connecting with students um but i think it's still fundamentally the same questions no matter the location
1: it's a good reminder to compare apples to apples so if yeah. you're going to ask these questions here ask them there as well and just see how the differences come in terms of those responses i like that tova what do you have to add
3: uh, a little of substance, because that was perfect. Um, ask direct questions. What do you do on Thursday nights? What does your roommate do on Thursday nights? What does your friend who lives down the hall do on Thursday night? What about Friday, Saturday? Uh, you know, it's if, if it's a school that has a parking deck and you're in an urban environment, one of the tips uh, an old colleague used to say is go walk in the parking deck and look at the license plates. Do you get the impression everyone's going to be leaving on the weekend? Because hmm. they're all local. Um, or are they from all over the country? Hmm. Uh, and and asking what weekend life is like. One of the things that I think is great is find out, is there something to do different seven days a week right there on campus? Do you never have to leave the gates or the walls or the few blocks to have a vibrant experience? Uh, Because that might be where you start out, even if the city was the draw. You want to know, as Lauren said, is is this my jam? Is this my vibe? Are these my people? And ask those same questions you would ask for any school you're looking at.
1: Could you imagine if NYU was just like we don't have any student life? We've got New York. Yeah, we don't. We've, we haven't planned any activities. We don't sponsor any clubs. Just go explore the city. Uh, that would be dereliction of duty. Um, thank you both for coming on the show. It's fun to hear a little bit about uh, your college experiences and, and how you made that choice. Maybe we'll get to talk a little bit more about that uh, on a future show or over a beer or something like that. Thanks for coming on. Sounds off.
3: like fun. It does. Thanks, guys.
1: All right. When we come back, we are going out to the country in Hamilton College. We're going to talk to uh, one of our colleagues about life in a more rural setting. So stick around.
0: You are listening to Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Hey, folks. Welcome back to Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. We had a great discussion in the first segment today, talking a little bit about what it's like to go to school in the heart of the city. And now we are getting out of town and talking a little bit about what it's like to be a student in a more remote or rural setting. Uh, joining us to do that is one of our newer team members. He is a former admission officer at Brown University and at Hamilton College, where he's also an alumnus. Ryan Krebs, welcome to the show. Hi, Ian. It's great to be here. I'm um, great to have you. I'm going to start with the same question that I asked uh, Tova and Lauren in the last segment, which is, um, where did you grow up and, and go to high school? And as you were thinking about the places that you were considering for your college experience, um, what were the considerations that you were making with respect to setting? Um, you know, did you want to be in a more rural setting, or or were you kind of all over the map? Yeah,
5: so I grew up in a small rural community in Iowa. And everybody from my high school essentially had three options. If you're in the top half of the class, you went to a local state university. If you're in the bottom half, you went to either a local community college or you, you joined the military or the workforce. And so for me, I was in the top half of my class. I was planning on going to the University of Northern Iowa to study accounting. And during my, my senior year of, of high school, I had a really good football season and one of my neighbors on my street happened to work at a local college, which was Grinnell College. Mm-hmm. And the football coaches reached out to me saying, you should really look at our school. And mm-hmm. I didn't really know much about, about the school, even though it was only a couple blocks from my parents' house. Um, but they brought me on campus. I got to learn a little bit about the liberal arts. Um, I got to learn a little bit about their football program. And it just seemed so different than what most of the students in my my high school were doing. Um, but I knew it was a really hard school to get into. A lot of the students were coming from places like Chicago, New York, San Francisco, yeah. way outside of, of, of rural America. But I applied, ended up getting in, um, and was excited to try something different. And so for me, it, I only applied to I think it was three total schools, um, and Grinnell was the one that that stuck out to me as the place where I wanted to go because it was just so different than anything else that I, I had seen out there for colleges.
1: How different was Grinnell in terms of its setting from where you grew up? Did you feel like there was a big transition? I know that it is quite, Grinnell is one of those schools that really, I haven't been there, but um, talking to admission officers who were there, that feels quite remote, um, many hours away from kind of your your nearest city. Um, And how did that adjustment kind of play out for you?
5: Yeah, so Grinnell was literally two blocks from my parents' house, so I went to college closer than I went to high school, elementary school, or middle school. Okay. Um, Very bizarre experience, but um, I would say being on the Grinnell campus, it felt like I was a world away from from the rural Iowa community that I grew up in, and that was one of the things that I really loved about Grinnell. They try to, at the time, position themselves as not in the middle of nowhere, but in the middle of everywhere. Um, I think that's kind of a hard sell once you're in yeah. Grinnell, Iowa, because it's pretty far from everything. Um, but the real beauty was that you got to connect with the other students there on campus. And I worked at some really great schools that have great numbers in terms of diversity and where students are coming from. But because those schools were larger, sometimes students fall into to like their own groups, whereas at Grinnell, everybody had to interact with everybody. And so it was a really cool way to get to learn about where other people were coming from, the different parts of the world that they were from, because Grinnell has a really high international student population. Um, and it's really enriched my experience as an alum because I have friends all over the U.S. and all around the world. So
1: this is really interesting because you're you're keying in on kind of a distinction between a small college and a big university, but you could have both types of educational experience in the middle of nowhere, right? Um, You know, I I kind of think of, I think Penn State is probably a pretty good example of a place that, you know, it's a college town. How is there a difference between being in a more remote setting at a big university versus being in a remote setting for a small college? Is it really a distinct difference um, in terms of what your experience is like with respect to that setting, that location?
5: Yeah, so from my experience, visiting some of those bigger schools that are in remote areas, they tend to have either big sports teams or a big college town feel to them where you have a lot of access to um, opportunities off, off of campus. Um, being in a, at a small college in a remote area, that's really the cultural hub for that community. And that's an exciting thing as a student because A lot of what you're doing, whether you're writing for the newspaper, playing on the sports team or performing for the the theater, you're you're the star of the show that's what everyone everyone's reading the newspaper everyone's going to the sporting events and so that's a really cool thing but at the same time a lot of people from those small communities um visit that small college and, and they're supporting those programs as well so it, it's a much more intimate environment and you're really getting to know um your stu- the other students the faculty members and administrators quite well
1: When we were discussing in the last segment, I was sort of thinking about, you know, Reed, where I went to school, if you kind of airlifted Reed and you dropped it somewhere else, it's it's great that it's in Portland. That's a wonderful feature, but it's not really something that changes the overall academic and social experience. But, you know, students there talk about the bubble. It has a very tight-knit community, very similar to Grinnell. I think if you put Reed in the middle of Iowa, you might have a pretty similar experience to what Reed looks like when it's in Portland. Are there essential properties to being in Grinnell, to being in Iowa that make Grinnell what it is? Or could you take that campus and, you know, magically put it in the middle of a city or put it somewhere else and have a, a very similar experience? What's your sense of that?
5: Yeah, I think Grinnell is really tied to its place, um, in part because that the students are, that are choosing to go there are purposely choosing to go to the middle of nowhere to have a college experience. Um, and so I think the people that it attracts is it's a uni- unique group of people, but also some of the experiences there off campus are unique to its setting in Iowa. Um, Iowa is the first state to have the caucuses, so Grinnell is a very political campus, and a lot of candidates come through campus once every four years, so that's really exciting. Given that students are in college for four years, you get one of those experiences during your time there. And then Grinnell also has different centers on its campus, like the Center for Prairie Studies, which is unique to its setting and allows students to study both the science of of the prairie, but also, you know, uh, issues related to policy and and development around sort of the natural setting of of Iowa.
1: So, yeah, I mean, and that's that's really cool. And I think um, it's interesting to think about those relationships. Now, you're someone that you grew up. couple of blocks away from Grinnell, you went to Grinnell, you then went to Hamilton to work um, in admission. So there's like this kind of theme for you in terms of small town. And I know that when you went to Providence uh, and and Brown is a little bit bigger, a little bit different. How often do you see students that are coming from big cities that are drawn to smaller towns? Is that... um, does it happen often? Um, is it rare to run into, uh, you know, a Chicago native at a at a place like Grinnell? What what what's the general distribution of students, and do those kids feel antsy? Like, are they like, there's nothing to do? I got to I got to get some more action. Like, this is a little bit uh, too quiet for me.
4: How did that play yeah.
5: out? I, I would say a place like Grinnell probably doesn't have too much overlap with a place like NYU. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do get plenty of students from from the cities and suburbs acro- across the U.S. Um, and my perspective as, as a local student that was going to Grinnell College, I always saw it as a, as a school for the, the city people or, or the people from the coast. Um, and so I think a lot of students come from urban and suburban environments, and they're purposely coming to Grinnell because they, they want to get away. They know that they're going to live in cities for most of their life, and this is their one opportunity to live in a, a small town and a small community, and and to have that sort of Americana experience to, per se. And um, I think the students that that are choosing to go to these um, remote places, they're going going to to those schools for for a reason. In um, in Iowa and at Grinnell specifically, it's very much about community. Um, I think you could say something similar about Hamilton, but Hamilton's also in the, the foothills of the Adirondacks. And so there's an outdoorsy vibe there. A lot of students like to ski and hike and and snowshoe. And the outdoor club was huge at Hamilton. And so a lot of students see it as a place to get a really good education while also doing things outside the classroom that they really enjoy.
1: Yeah. And we talked a little bit about with respect to the city uh, experience that the different cities have different flavors, that you could be in a city in Omaha, Nebraska. It doesn't have to be New York City. And I think it's a great reminder that Grinnell is going to be really different from Hamilton, is going to be really different from Whitman College in Walla Walla, Washington. You know, you have schools that take on characteristics of their locations even if they're not cities, right? That that just they're fed by those kinds of opportunities. And I think it's important for students to be aware of that as they're visiting schools and assessing kind of the features um, that might be available to them there. Um, When you grew up around Grinnell, so you spent a lot of time there before graduating, one of the great features of urban schools is often that students will graduate and then they'll get work in that same city. And so it extends some aspect of their social life from college. It's like, all right, now, I'm not hitting the books, I can kind of explore a little bit more, I can take advantage of the nightlife, I don't have homework. Um, but that it seems to me that that wouldn't be something that you would find all that often at at smaller schools. And most people are leaving after they graduate. What is the effect of that on community on, you know, the alumni network on just that sense of connective tissue with your classmates?
5: Yeah, well, I'd say that a lot of alums, both from Grinnell and at Hamilton, they end up in the major US cities. So they have really strong alumni networks in places like Chicago, New York, TC and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, and so but there's a lot of places where I go and I immediately fall into that old the old Grinnell ties. We can connect. There's, a, there's places where a lot of Grinnell people will meet up as alums to reflect on their time at the college. And there's also sort of this idea of going back to the campus too, and experiencing some of the traditional um, experiences at Grinnell. Um, and so I think there is still the strong tie to get back to Iowa and, and see, see the campus, but at the same time, Uh, the connections that you make over those four years, those become some of the the best friends that you're going to have your entire life. So whether it's going to weddings, um, just meeting up in in cities as you're traveling for work, uh, there's a really strong network um, at these small colleges.
1: Do do you find people are going back to campus for alumni and reunions, weekends, and things like that at Grinnell? Are are people often coming back or do they kind of say, "Oh, that was my four-year experience and... I love connecting with my alumni network in my city, but I don't have a need to go back to, to campus and reconnect with the place. Um, yeah, with both Brunel and Hamilton, what was the experience there?
5: Yeah, so both schools have really strong uh, reunion programs. Um, Hamilton actually keeps an open invite for uh, stu- uh, graduates to come back each and every year if they would like. Um, uh, Grinnell keeps it a little bit more on a cadence of every five years there are cluster reunions, so you come back not just with your class but the class above and below you, and okay. that's that's rotating every every ten years or so. And then on the, on your ten year reunion you come back um, as your as your individual class, but. A lot of the, the people that you connect with during your time at Grinnell aren't, aren't just the students, it's the faculty and, and the administrators. And so a lot of uh, alums like to go back and see those, those people as well, whether that is going back for the reunion weekend in the summer, which is a really great time to be in Iowa, or if you're going back for an event that's tied to something that you were a part of, whether that's a, a sporting event um, a big event within the, the music or theater scene. Um, so, so students and, and our, excuse me, alumni do feel a draw to get back to campus, um, but given its location, it's not something that they can do um, every so yeah, often. just
1: pop in. Yeah, you're not flying direct to Grinnell. Uh,
5: right. Um, you know, with
1: city campuses, I think um, one of the perceptions for students is if I go there, there's gonna be something for me because cities have something for everyone. Um, and so I'll eventually find my, my niche. With smaller campuses, I think there is sometimes a fear that if I don't like it, this is all there is. There's not a whole lot for me to explore here. And so I'm wondering, as you, you know, putting your counselor's hat on and thinking about supporting students in identifying their fit, especially for more remote, more rural institutions, what are the things that they should be looking for to kind of assess that fit as prospective students? Are there differences in terms of how they might visit a rural campus versus a more urban campus?
5: Right. I think for students that really care about community, a a rural school can work really well for them. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt during my time at Grinnell that there was often too many activities that I wanted to take part in that that I couldn't actually do all of those things. And I saw the same thing while working at Hamilton is that students were, were busy nonstop because the school's putting a lot of programming on to keep students entertained and excited about being there. But these are also the types of students that are excited to create their own programming and create new opportunities, bring speakers to campus. And so there's usually something going on almost every night of the week. Um, And so I think if you really care about community, you wanna make those connections with people from different backgrounds, a small campus is a great place. Um, Now, if you're a student thinking that you are really focused on pre-professional opportunities, you want access to things outside of a small community where you're seeing the same people every, every day, then perhaps a city is a, a better environment for you. Um, but I think like so many of my friends from Grinnell, they knew that going to a small college in the middle of nowhere was something they could only do one time in their life and they could live in a city and have that city experience the rest of it. So they made the same decision I made and, and I, I think it was a, a really awesome experience.
1: One of the things I love about small schools in general, and I think those that are especially um, polarizing in terms of their experiences, whether it's a Grinnell from setting and and academics, read academically, they're able to be unapologetic about saying, you know, this is is not for everyone. If you're going to like it, you're really going to like it. And if you're not, then that's okay, because there are a lot of other options for you. So see if it's for you. But, uh, you know, if you don't love Grinnell, I think that's fine. They're going to find, you know, a great population of students to come in uh, for their class every single year. Um, Ryan, thanks for coming on the show. It was a lot of fun talking to you about uh, small town colleges.
5: Yeah, thank you, Ian.
1: Glad to have you. All right, folks, when we come back, we are going to talk through the FAFSA with a top 10 list of the most important FAFSA questions. Don't go away.
3: Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN.
0: College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. You are listening to Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: All right, folks, welcome back to the final segment for today's episode of Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. We are in... FAFSA season. Now, uh, everybody out there who is looking at applying to college for the coming fall is starting to think about these five letters, FAFSA, and trying to understand exactly what this form can do for them in terms of helping to finance their education. So joining us to talk through some of the most common questions that our finance experts get about the FAFSA is Chrissy Ferrin Hey, Chrissy, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. Good morning. Happy to be here.
1: I'm very glad to have you here, and we are going to start just jumping right into some of these big questions, and I don't always know the answers to these questions, so I'm hoping that you can guide me a little bit with, uh, with these. The first one, I think, which is probably the biggest one that I get all the time from families, you probably get all the time from families, is should a family fill out the FAFSA if they don't expect to qualify for any need-based financial aid?
4: Yeah, and that's true. That is one of the biggest questions we get when we're talking to families. Um, And it's not really a yes or no answer. Um, The FAFSA, so there's a couple of reasons I would tell a family to fill out the FAFSA each year. Um, Number one, it's required if the family is wanting to borrow either student loans or parent loans through the federal loan program. So if you're thinking that you need to borrow or you want to borrow, the FAFSA is a requirement for that every year. Um, a couple of other reasons are that um, some schools might require the FAFSA just to be considered for merit scholarships. So there's mm-hmm. not a lot of schools out there that do that, but there could be some st- schools that say, you know, in order to be considered for academic or merit scholarships, we want you to fill out the FAFSA. Um, some schools don't allow you to fill out the FAFSA in the subsequent years if you don't fill it out your f- child's freshman year. So again, that's something to, to think about. And. Some schools are even giving small scholarships of you know five hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, just for having the FAFSA filled out. So if you're thinking you're not sure you want to fill it out, you don't, you know, you're not going to qualify. Just make sure that you're checking with your the student schools um, before deciding not to fill it out. Just for those reasons, because sometimes there's a little money in it. Sometimes you know, it, 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 if you want to borrow, you need to. So I would just make sure that you check to make sure the school doesn't require it for one of those reasons. And if not, certainly don't have to. It's not, it's not. It's not a um, obligation. So,
1: is that usually something that you're going to find on the school's uh, financial aid website, um, or will you have to send an email yeah. or, or make a call?
4: Typically, it'll be if, if you're looking under uh, when you're looking on the school's website. If you just type in the word FAFSA, this is the five letters. Or if you look under financial aid, sometimes if you're looking for merit scholarships on the school's website, it'll tell you if they require the FAFSA for merit, but. So normally you can get that information from the school's website, but it doesn't hurt to email if if you're not seeing any of that. Just ask the financial aid office or the admissions office.
1: Great. That sounds good. So number two uh, question here, which I think probably is going to be asked by families that are having students head into their sophomore year. Do they have to fill out a FAFSA every year? Is this something you can just do once and you're covered or do you need to update it year by year?
4: Uh, so, again, it, it's, the FAFSA would be required to be filled out each year if you want to be considered for any need-based aid. So if you do think you might qualify for certain things and you want to continue that, you have to fill out the FAFSA each fall of, your, um, of the student's college career. Um, again, if, if you know that you're not going to qualify and you just decide to do it the first year just to make sure you've you know, touched all bases, and you find out you don't qualify for anything, you don't necessarily have to fill it out in subsequent years. Um, So really, the reasons would be if you need any need, if you're getting any need-based aid, or if you want to borrow from those federal loan programs, you do have to fill it out each year.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Now, this is a question I think that comes up a lot because the deadline for the FAFSA isn't always the same as the deadline for admission. And there's multiple different rounds of admission deadlines that you might see for a particular school. So question number three yeah. that you shared with us is, is should I apply for admission to a school I'm interested in before or after I file the FAFSA? Or when is the best time for me to apply?
4: Yeah, so there's so schools do have FAFSA deadlines, filing deadlines, just like they have admissions deadlines. And again, that's always should always be available on the school's website if you're looking under financial aid. They should tell you what the deadline is to file their FAFSA. Sometimes the deadlines aren't until February, January. Some have them as late as March. Um, so you can certainly wait until the deadline if you'd like. I would recommend filling it out at least by the deadline, if not before. Um, it does you can certainly fill out the FAFSA anytime after October first., uh, that's when it's always available each year is October first. Um, you can fill it out prior to applying if you know what schools you want to apply to. Um, even if you do the FAFSA early and you haven't applied to schools yet, nothing happens to the FAFSA until after you've been uh, admitted into the school. So once you're actually admitted, then financial aid will go in and draw down your FAFSA from the Department of Education. So, If you apply early, that's not a a problem at all. It'll just kind of sit there until the admissions office admits you, and then they'll go from there. But definitely make sure you know what the deadline is to apply and make sure you meet that deadline.
1: Yeah, you, you don't want to miss uh, those deadlines, uh, certainly. And, and colleges no. I, in general are very good at matching up forms from students. So whether it's a letter of recommendation that's submitted before your application, mm-hmm. they're going to match that up just like they'll match up the FAFSA with your application once it arrives. Um, yep, Absolutely. One of the terms that's mentioned on the FAFSA that I think it might be new to many families is work study. So your fourth question here is is families like to ask, what is work study? And what if I'm not sure that I'm interested in pursuing work study at this time?
4: Yeah, and that's a question we get asked a lot, too, as families don't know what work study is. And there's just one question on the FAFSA in the student section that asks if they want to be considered for work study. Um, Work study is just a, it's a form of need-based financial aid, so it does have a financial need component to it. But basically what it is, is if you're awarded work study, you're able to get a part-time job working on the college campus. Uh, The student earns a paycheck, just like any other job, and they can use that money for whatever they want, living expenses, buying books, um, you know, whatever, going towards their tuition, whatever they would like to use it for. Um, But I would recommend, even if you're not sure you're going to qualify, even if you're your child doesn't know if they want to do work study or you don't know if you want your child to do work study, I would check the box. I would recommend checking the box just because you can always say no if you do get it. So, if you do get awarded um, work study by the financial aid office at those schools and you decide later that you don't need it or don't want it, you can always turn it down. Typically, if you don't ask for it now when you fill out the FAFSA, there's not a great chance of getting it later. So, it's better to ask for it now and then turn it down if you don't need it than to not get it now and try to get it later when they've already given out their money because it's on a, um, on a limited fund basis. So, but it's, it's great. It gives the students a chance to work for 10 hours, 12 hours a week and, you know, meet some people on campus, get some connections going. So it's a great thing. They're
1: they're usually pretty good jobs too. I mean, like working in the sports center, handing out towels or, you know, working in the library, there's, there's some good stuff on work study. It's you want to say yes, I think to that.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: All right, so there are often different kind of family situations that uh, students are going to run into. One of those are, you know, divorce uh, within the family. So if I have uh, divorced parents and I get to fill out the FAFSA, what are some things that I need to be aware of?
4: Uh, yeah, so with divorced parents, it's going to be changing a little bit. So just to kind of remind families, if if they don't know. The FAFSA is going undergoing some changes starting in the year of 2024-25, um, so it won't be anything for this fall, but um, something to kind of look forward to and, and talk with us if you have questions. But, but right now, when you fill out a FAFSA, if you're currently divorced, the FAFSA only includes one parent, so both parents do not have to fill it out. Who they use on the FAFSA is called the custodial parent. And right now, the Department of Education deems the custodial parent to be with the parent that the student lived with most in the last 12 months. So it's usually pretty easy to figure out who they've lived with in the last 12 months the most, and that would be considered the custodial parent. And that parent's information would be on the FAFSA. Um, starting in 2425, they're going to be moving more towards which parent provided more financial support. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of guidance on this yet. They haven't said how they're, if they're using tax returns, we're not really sure how they're going to determine that, but that is one of the changes that supposedly may be taking place in the future is instead of who the student lived with the most, it's going to be who provided the most financial support. So if you know that you have children going to school, you know, in the next few years, definitely um, stay in contact with the schools or, or with us to find out how that's affecting everything.
1: Gotcha. So, so more to come on that. And we will definitely have some segments here on the show to talk about that new FAFSA when it drops. Yeah. Yeah. Now you've got your non-custodial or you've got your custodial parent filling out the FAFSA. What if that custodial parent is remarried? Does, Does that income also need to be reported on the FAFSA?
4: Yeah, unfortunately, it does. So, if a parent gets remarried, um, the FAFSA is going to be looking. So, like for example, if you're filling out a FAFSA next week, starting in October, for a student that's graduating in 2023 and going to college, they're looking at your 2021 tax information. Right. Um, if you, even if you weren't married back in 2021 to this person, let's say you just married them last weekend, the FAFSA, because you're married now, it would still require both um, wow. spouses, the, the spouse and the parents' income. So. From 2021. Wow. So it doesn't matter if you were married back in that tax year or not. If you're currently married on the FAFSA, as you're filling it out, you do have to include all of the spouse's income, assets, and, and anything else they're asking.
1: And probably no way to talk to customer service to get out of that. I would imagine that you just <laughs> kind of have to. <laughs> okay, yep. I'm judging not, by not your not laugh. not a lot of
4: ways to get out of that, unfortunately. <laughs> Yep.
1: Okay. So I've submitted my FAFSA. Uh, How do I, when, or when do I find out um, how much I'm going to be eligible for through that form? Uh,
4: So typically it's, it's up to the schools to kind of determine when they notify students of their financial aid offers. Um, So when a student, you know, the typical timeline is you apply for colleges for admissions in the fall sometime, you know, early, early winter and once you're admitted to the school, you do have to. You're filling out the FAFSA at the same time. Once you're admitted to the school, that's when the financial aid office can start to work on the financial aid offer after you're admitted. The most typical time to hear back from the financial aid office as to what you're eligible for for that school is usually February, March, even sometimes as late as April. Um, they'll email you. Usually, most everything is electronic now, but some schools may still be using paper options. But Usually they'll email the student to let them know that there's a financial aid offer, you know, in their student portal to look at. But so typically you'll hear about everything you're eligible for um, from from filling out the FAFSA from the school sometime in the spring. Um, You can, once you're filling out the FAFSA, to find out if you qualify for like the federal Pell Grant or what you're eligible for for federal student loans. So those two items, the FAFSA will tell you pretty much immediately once you've filled it out. Um, as soon as you submit it, it'll give you a page that, you know, kind of the confirmation page basically that says you submitted it. On that confirmation page further down the bottom, it'll tell you if you have el- eligibility for the Pell Grant, what your student loan could be if you wanted to borrow. So those two items you you would know almost instantly, but everything else you pretty much have to wait for the school to notify you usually sometime in the spring.
1: Gotcha. So even though it's a federal form, it's going to be the individual schools that are going to no- notify you about your your eligibility and your packages. Um, Yes. How many schools can be added to the FAFSA? And what about those students who are applying to, and I'll just say it, too many schools? um, Can they add more uh, to the FAFSA?
4: Yeah, and you're right. We get that question all the time too, is how many, you know, I I can only add so many schools, but I'm going to apply to 20. What do I do? Uh, The FAFSA will allow you to add 10 schools at a time. So if you have 10 schools, you can do the FAFSA the first time and submit all those schools. If you have more, uh, what you need to do is wait for your FAFSA to um, be processed. And so they'll give you an email. The the Department of Education will send emails letting you know the FAFSA has been submitted, letting you know it's been processed. Um, Once it's been processed, then you can go back into the FAFSA. And when you log in, it will give you the opportunity to add more schools. So it's more of a matter of deleting some schools you've added and adding more. So you can do 10 at a time, basically.
1: It's basically like the read receipts that you get on a text it's been received. Um, Now you're good. You can go in and and change it.
4: Yep. Um, There'll be one that says it's been submitted and one that says it's been processed. And the processed one is the one you want.
1: Great. Um, All right. We don't have enough time to get to the last two questions, but I'm just going to ask you one of them very quickly. Um, What are the assets that are included on the FAFSA? If you could give us a quick rundown of that for people uh, to to know what to expect.
4: So the quicker thing is to tell you what's not included. So what's not included as an (laughs) asset is your home. So if you have home equity, you do not have to include that. Um, And Mm -hmm. any retirement assets, 401ks, IRAs, pensions, annuities, those are not included as an asset on the FAFSA. Pretty much anything else is if you have mutual funds, stock, stock options, um, savings accounts, 529 um, education savings plans, other properties, everything else is included except your home and your retirement assets.
1: Perfect. That's great. And uh, maybe we can squeak this in there. Are the 529 college savings plans, those are parent assets on the FAFSA?
4: Those are parent. Yeah. Even though the student is the beneficiary, 529 plans are a parent asset, which works in your favor, actually, um, instead of a student asset. So those are parent assets.
1: That's what I thought. All right, cool. We made it through all 10. Chrissy, thank you so much for uh, speeding there into a rapid finish at the end. We will be back again (laughs) next. Yeah. Thank you. We will be back again next week uh, with another great show. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the schools that have some of these atypical deadlines or other quirky applications. Lauren Randall is going to be back on the show to talk over those with Beth Heaton. We will also talk about the addition of ED, to the University of Vermont and their Ben & Jerry supplements, then we'll talk about net price calculators and how to use those with your ED application. So another wonderful show. Thank you all for being regular listeners. We look forward to welcoming you back here again next week. In the meantime, enjoy the arrival of the fall in October. We'll see you soon.